Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and be still before our Father. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. The day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Father, you remind us habitually in Scripture that while no one can know the day or the hour, we can know the season of the return of your Son. And while the world may be sane in their plans, peace and safety, suddenly you will catch out your church, you said, and you, would bring, you will bring your wrath upon this world, designed to help many to repent. Help us to be faithful in these days, no matter how dark and dismal it may get. It's easy to get despondent when we look around, but when we consider what you have revealed, we should be encouraged. So help us to be encouraged this morning as we open your word. Allow us to be like little children, like Samuel, who said, teach me, Lord. Teach us. May we lay our intellectualism and pride in the dust and come like little children. Father, help me, fill me and use me in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the epistle of James chapter 5. If you are new to the Bible, you might want to use the table of contents, or you can just find Revelation. Most of us know that's the last book. If you scan back just a few pages to the left, you will come to the epistle of James. James is what we refer to as a general epistle. When you think of the New Testament, there are four principal sections to the New Testament. First, there's the historical books. The historical books would be the Gospels and the book of Acts. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that run through the life of Christ. And then you have the book of Acts that uncovers the next 30 years of church history, starting with his ascension. After the historical books, you have the Pauline epistles. 1 Corinthians all the way through Philemon. And then after the Pauline epistles, we have what we call the non-Pauline epistles, or sometimes we call it the general epistles, or very often historically, the church referred to this section of the New Testament as the Catholic epistles. Catholic is a combination of two Greek words, kathos. Kathos, it speaks of whole and allos, so a kathos according to allos whole, so literally according to the whole. In other words, the general epistles were not written to a specific church or location, but they applied generally to the church at large. And really, this is the understanding when we speak of the Catholic church, we're speaking about the universal body of Christ the people of God, wherever they may be. And so in the Apostles' Creed, not written, of course, by them, but summarizing their doctrine, it says, I believe in the holy Catholic Church. We're saying, I affirm the universal body of Christ, that it's not just us here at Community Bible Church, but there are born-again believers across the world. 
or in the Nicene Creed written about 325 A.D., we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So Catholic simply means universal. And so when we speak of the Catholic epistles, we're speaking of those universal epistles. Obviously, every book of the New Testament, if it's written to the Church of Galatia or Ephesus, it applies to us. But there are some books that were written in a broad way for believers wherever they might be found. So again, think of the Bible, the New Testament. It will help you in organizing your thinking. You have the historical books. You have the Pauline epistles. You have the general epistles, which would be Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And on either side of those, two J books, James and Jude. And then Revelation, of course, stands all on its own. Now, if you remember the opening verse, he is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. So we speak of the diaspora, spora seed. These people were scattered like seed, largely, of course, due to persecution. So he's writing to Jewish Christians. This is one of the earliest books written in all of the New Testament. Some think this was written right after Matthew and even before Paul wrote Galatians. But it's early on in the New Testament, and we underscored why that was important for us to know in the opening message in this series. Now, this morning, we want to focus on verses 7 through 12, but let me give you the broad context. And I hope by the time we're done with James, you can think your way through the book. See, if you have the big picture of any book of the Bible, then the details begin to take on meaning. So that when you think of James, uh, I know there's something in James about maybe faith without works and the tongue. No, I really want you to be able to kind of think your way through the whole book. And then it becomes a tool in your life, not just as you're edified by the truth that's found in it, but also in helping others, your children and those whom you disciple. So when a question comes up, you can put in your mind the framework of the book. So we've seen that when you read a book over and over and over again, you begin to see the component parts. And this epistle divides into three sections. Chapter one, of course, deals with the development of your faith. Chapters two through four, the distortion of faith. And then chapter five with the display of faith. So we opened up with chapter one and we focused on how God develops our faith. And he underscored for us three problems. And many of you have written out in the margin the major highlights of each chapter. So if you remember in chapter one, he dealt with the problem of pain, then he dealt with the problem of temptation, and then he dealt with the problem of not applying God's word to your life, being just a hearer, but not someone who takes what he hears and puts it into shoe leather. And so chapter one speaks to how our faith can develop or progress. When you come to chapters two through four, you turn a page, you turn a corner in the epistle, and he deals with the distortion of faith. And of course, he speaks of the distortion of faith as it relates to our testimony, as it relates to our tongue, and as it relates to things that we are to avoid. So he spoke about our testimony, our relationship to other people, and the good works that should em emulate from our life. Then he spoke about our tongue, that a mature believer has control over his tongue. And hopefully he is beginning to speak the wisdom that comes from above. And then in chapter four, he dealt with those three things that we should avoid. He deals with the problem of worldliness. God has not called us to be shaped by the world, but we are to be transformed through the Word of God that we might be distinctly, distinctively different from the world. 
And so the whole church growth movement that started largely in the 1990s tried to emulate the things that the world would find attractive in order to draw them into these churches. And so we saw this huge mega church movement grow across the land. And so we have the largest churches in our history with the least amount of influence. And our nation, instead of being coming shaped and influenced by the light and salt of the body of Christ, we've become like them. It is not our likeness to the world, it's our distinctiveness from the world. So he deals with the problem of worldliness in chapter 4. If you remember, then he dealt with the problem of judging, how we're not to unfairly judge my Christian brother. And then third, he dealt with the problem of perspective, and he just reminded us that our life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes. And then if you remember, we came last time to chapter 5, where he begins to unfold the display of faith. If you were here last week, we dealt with verses 1 through 6, where he underscored our possessions. And he wants us to have a godly perspective on the things that God has entrusted us with, even when people are unfair with us and do not pay us an honest day's wage. And then, of course, when we come to verses 13 through 18, before the conclusion in the last two verses, he'll deal with physical healing in prayer. And those two, of course, are wed together. But sandwiched between the two, where we find ourselves this morning, deals with the subject of patience. Now, he introduced the topic earlier in the epistle, but now he's going to camp on it, but probably not in the way that you think. He's going to deal with an aspect of patience that very often many of us never really think about. But patience is important. It enhances our testimony, and it really allows us to enjoy life. James 5, we want to begin reading verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it, it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren... Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, let me make three observations about this paragraph of Scripture before we try to unpack the details. The first observation is that he is clearly switching gears. In the first six verses, he's been dealing with the rich unbeliever. And he uses him as an example of what we as true believers are not to be like. But the fact that he's turned a corner is obvious by this word, brethren. He uses it four times in this paragraph, in verse 7, in verse 9, in verse 10, and in verse 12. I have it underlined each time. In other words, the kind of patience that he is describing concerns the brethren. 
you know, the world will offer a certain kind of self-control, maybe through an AA program or certain kind of patience through uh, trying to, you know, modify your thinking using tools like meditation, et cetera, et cetera. But that's all the world can do. We're not talking about a white-knuckle kind of self-control or patience. We're talking about something that can only be true of someone who's been born again, because only the born-again believer has become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and it says we are filled with the Spirit, that one of the fruits that He develops is patience, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you've never been born again, it doesn't matter how hard you may try, the kind of patience that God is underscoring here can never be true until you make that decision. The second observation I want to make concerns the word therefore. And as I have told you on countless occasions, that's a structural marker. And whenever you see the word therefore, you want to ask, what is it therefore? So the context here is important to the flow of thought that the Holy Spirit is inspiring through the, the pen of the Apostle James. He is signaling you that verses 7 through 12 is somehow related to the previous paragraph. And so once more, he has addressed the rich man. If you remember in chapter 2, he first brought him up in 2 and verse 6. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Yes, it is. That's what they did in that day. And then, of course, he brought them up again here in verse 6 of this chapter, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. The unbelieving rich in James's day was persecuting the righteous believing, in this case, Jew. They were putting them to death through the court system that they manipulated for their own purposes. And so beginning here in verse 7, James is giving us some very practical advice on how to live when you are unjustly treated, when you are in some kind of intolerable situation. So he's moving from condemning the unrighteous rich to try to comfort the the believer, the religious saints here. Saints, and that's what you are if you know Christ. Sainthood is not something that it's earned. It's something that is credited to your account. And so in the New Testament, every believer is called a saint. And so remember, these were Christians who put in a hard day's work. And at the end of the day, when they expected to be paid, their check was being withheld. And of course, God heard, God saw the cry that they made to the Lord had reached the heirs of the Lord of Sabaoth. There's a third observation I want to underscore here, and it concerns the three illustrations that James gives us if we are to develop patience. There are three key words that you might want to circle or underline in your text. In verse 7, the word farmer. James's first illustration concerns the patient farmer. The second illustration comes in verse 10, and it's the word prophets. We're going to look at the patient endurance of the Old Testament prophets to see what we can learn from them. And then the third illustration in verse 11 concerns this man most of you know as Job, and he's a prototypical example of true biblical patience. So James wants to build his case 
for patient endurance through these three illustrations. And that's really our outline this morning. Principle number one on your note-taking outline, if you're listening online, there's a place where you can uh, print it out if you wish. Like a patient farmer, we are to wait for the return of God. Like a patient farmer, we are to wait for the return of God. So he's talking about developing patience, especially for those who've been unjustly treated. There's a lot of talk today about ill treatment and a lack of justice, but most of it as it's being unfolded by our culture has nothing to do with Scripture. In fact, it's antithetical to what the Scripture says. So if we want to understand true biblical justice, pay attention this morning. Notice how verse 7 begins, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now that word patient, it appears four times in six verses, twice here in verse 7, once in verse 8, and then again in verse 10. So it's obviously pretty important. It's the Greek word makrothumia. You can hear two English words that come directly from the Greek. Macro, that means large or big. Thumia, we get our word like thermometer or thermos from it. And so putting the two words together, it literally meant someone who is long-tempered. And it's one of the attributes of God. And he's describing here a person who takes a long time to get angry. He is not a short-tempered person. He is a person with a long fuse and not a short fuse. And again, that's an attribute of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the same identical word, macrothumia, in the love chapter. My wife taught in woman's life this year, 1 Corinthians 13, and dozens of the women in our church memorize that whole portion of Scripture. And there it is translated patient. Love is patient. Love suffers long, you could say. Though closely related to this word, we saw earlier in the epistle, in the opening verses, the word endurance. He says, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, you are to let those trials have their perfect result that you are to endure through them. It's the same principle, but it's slightly a different word. In the opening chapter, the word that's translated endurance or patience, depending on your English Bible, deals with trying circumstances. In this particular section, he's dealing with trying people, difficult people. You got any difficult people in your life? Pay attention this morning. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Notice, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. So again, he follows up the previous paragraph of those who had their wages withheld, and for some, their lives were lost either through a lack of food or they were literally murdered by the court system. And we went through that last time. Therefore, be patient. In other words, you can't go around with the attitude, some sourpuss, like, hey, this isn't fair. This is unjust. And you're always, you know, bitter and angry like you're some kind of a victim. No, he says, be patient. Notice, until the coming of the Lord. Now, some of you have been reading the book of James once a week. You've told me since we started. Even I haven't done it every single week. 
but I'm proud of you that have. That's a wonderful goal that you've been uh, participating in. And if you read it again this week, it probably jumped out at you again that in these three verses, in three verses, three times the coming of the Lord is underscored. First here in verse 7, he speaks of the coming of the Lord. A second time in verse 8 when he says, the Lord is near. And then notice a third time at the, in the last part of verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door, that is at the threshold. So we're going to see throughout this paragraph that he's giving us the ultimate incentive that when we are mistreated, we need to look to the future when the Lord will come, when he will make every wrong right. And the word for coming is the Greek word parousia. And so many of you have studied theology and you will hear the term parousia, the parousia of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. Sometimes it's used of a person like the coming of Timothy. But most often, it's used of the Lord Jesus himself, either of the rapture, which is when he comes for his church, or for the second coming, when he will literally come to the earth and our prayers that he asks us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will literally be be fulfilled. But the word parousia speaks of the coming of the Lord in two phases, because Christ comes first for his church, and then he comes to the earth. Some of you were with us in our study of the Revelation, and I gave you this chart, so let me refresh your memory with it. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. We shall meet the Lord in the air. That's the promise of 1 Thessalonians. And so as I stood in the National Cemetery this week with one of our families one of our dear brothers who lost his wife at 58 years, I reminded that precious family that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive will be caught up, will meet the Lord in the air. But at the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. In the rapture, Christ comes for his people. At the second coming, He not only comes back with his people, but he brings angels who come for the lost to remove them from the earth. And so that verse often taken out of context, Hal Lindsey, sadly to say, grossly abused it, and he made an inaccurate application. One will be taken, one will be left. And he said that was the rapture. He was the first one to come up with that interpretation. But because he wrote so prolifically, many think that it's a reference to the rapture, but contextually it's a reference to the second coming. At the second coming, some will be taken away in judgment. And those who survive the tribulation, they will be left to enter into the great tribulation. At the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial before the tribulation. We'll talk about that in a moment, a pre-tribulational rapture. Whereas at the second coming, he comes after the hour of trial. In the rapture, there are no signs. It's imminent. Christ can return at any moment. Whereas in the second coming, there are many signs, many prophecies that must be fulfilled for Jesus to come back to the earth. And the rapture, the resurrection takes place when Christ comes in the air. The dead in Christ will come out of the grave first. Those of us who are alive will be caught up, will meet the Lord in the air. Whereas at the second coming, 
the resurrection takes place of Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints are not raised when the church is raised. And again, we studied seven different resurrections in our series on the Revelation. Now, Old Testament saints are raised at the end of the tribulation. Uh, at the rapture, believers will receive a glorified body. If Christ comes back today in the twinkling of an eye, this mortal will put on immortality, this perishable will put on that which is imperishable. I will receive a glorified body and my salvation will be completed. Whereas at the second coming, believers who are alive at the second coming, who survive the tribulation period, they will enter into the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies. And so the return of Jesus comes in two phases. And he is assuring them that they can be patient because when Jesus comes back, he's going to fix it all. Please notice how James illustrates his patience in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. The farmer is patient. He is waiting for the fruit of his labor. He doesn't go out and tear up the plants and say, I wonder if it's growing. No, he has to be patient. And to underscore this patience, James says he has to wait until he gets the early and late rains. This shows how long he had to wait. Because in Israel, there's not typically a drop of rain from May until September. And during this long, dry spell, the ground becomes hard as iron. But then the early rains come in October and November. And then the late rains typically in the end of February, March, and into April. And the farmer, he is waiting for those rains patiently so that the seed he has planted in the ground might begin to germinate. And then as it grows, at the end, he will harvest it. And so the late rains come in the springtime and the early rains in the fall. But he has to wait. It's not instantaneously. He can't speed up the harvest. And there's a lesson in that. There are some things that we can do like the farmer can do. He can plant the seed. He can weed the garden. He can fertilize the plants. Those are things that he can do. But there are other things that are totally out of his control that he can do absolutely nothing about. In ancient Israel, you didn't have irrigation systems. You had to depend on God to send the rain in order to make the plant sprout. And there are things, by the way, that you and I can do, things that are in our control. You know, I counsel people often about worry. And I remind him, well, it doesn't really do any good to worry. Think about it. If there's something you can do about the problem, then do it. Do what you can do. But if there's nothing you can do about it, and it's out of your hands, then you just have to wait on the Lord. And that's the same kind of thought that he is underscoring here in this section of Scripture that there are things that we can do and there are things that God can do and the two are brought together in this divine human relationship. So again, he says, you too be patient. Well, that's wonderful. How do I make this real in my life? He gets very practical, notice. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts. Or some of your English Bibles say, establish 
your hearts. It's a word that means you make it immovable. And he's already underscored how we can do that in chapter one. If you were here when I gave a sermon on how to hear a sermon, and I see some of you are applying the truths this morning. But God wants our hearts to be immovable. He wants our hearts to be strengthened. By the way, this word is used of the Lord Jesus. We're in Luke 9, 51 with a determination to go to Jerusalem. The text says he resolutely or he steadfastly, the King James said, set his face to go to Jerusalem. He determined no matter what that he was going to go to Jerusalem. Well, James, likewise, is saying, I want you to strengthen your heart to determine to do something. Now, it's kind of interesting as you read the New Testament because sometimes the strengthening is something that a human does or we personally do, or sometimes it's something that God does. For instance, Paul uses this identical word to describe Timothy. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. That's what I'm trying to do this morning as a pastor. I'm trying to strengthen you with truth. On the other hand, Paul makes a prayer that this is something that God does. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, a few verses later, he prays so that he, meaning God, that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness. So on the one hand, he sent Timothy to strengthen or to establish them. On the other hand, he prayed for God to establish them. And again, here is this divine human responsibility. He's already underscored this truth earlier in the epistle. Remember, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. That's your responsibility. If God seems distant this morning, remember who moved. It wasn't the Lord. As you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. But unfortunately, so many of God's people, instead of strengthening their hearts, which James has taught in chapter one happens through the truth of the Bible, they're poisoning their hearts. And they will go home tonight all across America and they will feed their minds on filth. And it is everywhere in the culture in which we live. You too be patient, strengthen, your hearts. So it's not just the attitude, let go and let God kind of distortion. No, there's something that we need to do. We need to live like it totally depended on us, and we need to live like it totally depends on God. Without him, I can do nothing. With him, I'm able to do everything. And so why are some people not established in the faith? Because they haven't strengthened their hearts. Does it bother you sometimes that you see a Christian who comes to a fellowship like this? They seem to be faithful and maybe even serve somewhere. And then all of a sudden, three, four years go by, and some crisis comes into their life, and they just fall apart like a deck of cards. And you think, I I thought he or she was a mature Christian. No, they had knowledge possibly, but they didn't really strengthen their heart with that knowledge. 
In fact, there are three key ingredients that God has given us to help us to establish or strengthen our hearts. You might want to jot these down and think about them this afternoon. Number one, there's the knowledge ingredients. Uh, There's the knowledge ingredients. There is the obedience ingredient. And then there's the perspective ingredient. First, there's the knowledge ingredient. And sadly, some Christians never really mature in their faith for a lack of knowledge. They come on Sunday morning, they don't need a Bible. People catch me going out the door, they said, I didn't bring a Bible, but I see I needed one. Yes, you do, because I'm not here to run my mouth and share my opinion and entertain you. And that's what we're doing in our day. We have pastors who are like clowns who are entertaining the goats when they are to be feeding the sheep. My people, Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Daniel says the reverse is true. The people who know their God will display strength. God's people sometimes don't grow for the simple reason they are undernourished, which is why if I am to display my love for Christ, I am to spend time in this book. I pour over the text every week. Rarely does a week go by when I have less than 25 hours in the text before I come and open it to you. Now, that may disappoint some of you that I didn't go fishing with you or see you in the hospital as much as I would have liked to have been there, but that's not my principal responsibility. My principal responsibility, apart from praying and evangelizing, is feeding the sheep of God. And sadly, in many churches in America, the people come and there's either nothing in the feeding trough or there's very little, not enough to really mature on. And by the way, the trough is open on Wednesday nights if you're interested too. (laughs) I've taught a lot of courses on Wednesday night like Bibliology, Christology, Soteriology, Ecclesiology, Eschatology, all kinds of courses in great depth on issues I might not be able to address on a Sunday morning. In addition to the knowledge factor, there's the obedience factor. And so 1 Corinthians 8, 1 reminds us that knowledge without obedience just puffs you up. It makes you proud over what you know. And so if you don't obey what you know, you just get puffed up potentially. But listen, when you begin to practice what God shows you, your life starts changing from the inside out. Jesus said, the one who obeys my commandments, he it is who loves me, and he it is who loves me, I will disclose myself to him. Think about that. God wants to disclose himself to you. And the obedient Christian who's walking in truth has a dynamic in their relationship with the Lord that is so rewarding, so fulfilling, that the things of the world begin to pass them by as meaningless. It's not by accident that Solomon will write in Proverbs 3.22 that God is intimate with the upright. God is not intimate with, with everyone who hears the truth. But he is intimate with the believer who hears the truth and begins to apply it. So in addition to the knowledge factor and the obedience factor, there's a third factor that he underscores for us here in our passage, and it is the perspective factor. Look again in verse 8. You too be patient. 
Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Again, the second mention of the return of Christ in this context. He's already said in verse seven, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And now for a second time, he reminds us for, you see that word for? It's a causal in the Greek. It means because. In fact, two major English translations rendered that way. They say strengthen your heart because the Lord's coming is near. When you read the New Testament, you are immediately struck with the reality that the New Testament writers believed in the imminent return of Jesus. Now, I know in our day there is gross ignorance on Bible prophecy. Though one-third of the Scripture is prophetic in nature, sadly, many pastors never preach a sermon on the return of Christ or in Bible prophecy. And you have to skip over huge portions of Scripture. And yet, you, so you mention the rapture and people look at you like cross-eyed, like what, what does that mean? And they have no idea. And occasionally someone will challenge me and they'll say, well, I heard the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word Trinity. And actually the word rapture is in the Bible. It's in the Latin Vulgate translation that was used almost exclusively for a thousand years. And so the five solas behind me on the stained glass, all in Latin, reflective of an age when that was the only translation of the Bible available to God's saints. But you cannot teach the Bible in the whole council of Scripture. Now, some people want me to speak on Bible prophecy every week. I can. I have to talk about raising children and healthy marriages and using your spiritual gifts. I have to preach the whole council of Scripture. And this is one of the benefits of preaching through a whole book of the Bible, because when you do it, repeatedly the return of Christ is going to come up. And so we shall not all sleep. Paul will say we shall be caught up, harpazo, raptere in Latin, and so our word rapture. So again, in your minds, here's a chart that might be helpful on the returns of Christ. And the rapture, he comes for his church, for his saints. When at the second coming, he comes back with his saints. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. We are alive and remain, we'll be caught up. But he's going to bring back with him, Paul says, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he comes for his saints, he comes with his saints. Look, if I drop dead in this pulpit this morning, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. Because the person inside this human shell by which you've related to me with is home with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so I will come back with Jesus. The dead in Christ will come out of the grave first. Yes, I will have my body buried if I have that option. Now, if somebody burns me to death, <clears throat> I won't have that option. But if I can have it buried, I'm going to have it buried. Now, it's not a problem if you cremate. And if you want to have your body cremated, I'll still do your funeral. So you don't have to ask me. But if you want to ask the biblical way in which to honor the body, you bury it because that's the example that God gave. And so these last three funerals I've done in the last three weeks, there was a body present and there was a whole lot more punch to those funerals because there was a body present. If you just got a little picture or a little urn, it doesn't ring home the enormity of death and at your funeral, 
For many of you, there will be family members and loved ones who don't know the Lord, and they will, if the pastor is Christ-centered, have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so the dead in Christ will come out of the grave. Those of us who are alive will meet each other in the air. Yes, we'll recognize each other, just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable and like Samuel was when he came up out of Sheol. At the rapture, he takes us to heaven. At the second coming, he comes back to the earth. His feet are planted on the Mount of Olives. He splits it in two. And prophecy after prophecy that has never been literally fulfilled is going to be fulfilled at that time. The rapture is a non-prophetic event. Nothing ever since Pentecost, when the last days began, nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come for his church. And so the imminent return of Christ. However, the second coming is a prophetically driven event. For instance, the gospel of the kingdom must go out to the whole world and then the end will come. When's that going to happen? During the tribulation. (laughs) They're going to pull off what we haven't done in 2,000 years. Through 144,000 Jewish evangelists, through two witnesses in the Temple Mount, through an angel, every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to hear the gospel. The whole world will be evangelized, and those who had never heard the gospel before in clarity and power will have an opportunity to repent. Those like those within the sound of my voice who've heard it before, it will be too late for you. And so the second coming is a prophecy-driven event. And as I've underscored, that's the amazement of our day. We are seeing prophecy fulfilled, which reminds you that the rapture is that much closer. Now, what do you do? Some people say, well, you know, here's, here's how it works, Pastor. Jesus is just coming back. He's going to take us to heaven, and that's the end of it. There's no tribulation period. There's no antichrist. In fact, some say Nero was the Antichrist. The tribulation period was the sufferings in the first century. And they spiritualized the text. There's no reign of Messiah on the earth, though it's repeated hundreds of times in the Old Testament prophets. It's underscored in the New Testament. We're just all going right up into heaven. What an abuse of Scripture. And it makes God less than faithful to His Word. No, he is going to fulfill literally every single promise for the second coming, just as he did for the first coming. And so the Bible teaches what we would call a pre-tribulational rapture. Before the time of Jacob's trouble, the church is going to be removed. And number one, we have Old Testament precedents for that. Remember Enoch? All of a sudden, he was no longer there. He was gone, and the book of Jude quotes him and looks at him as a picture of the rapture of the church. He's gone, and what happens? After Enoch is gone, evil unfolds on the earth like it had never unfolded before, and it results in a cataclysmic event, the great flood, and then Noah walks with his family into a brand new world. The church is going to be gone, Evil like never before is going to be unleashed. Yes, it's getting worse and worse and worse because we're living in the last of the last days, but you haven't seen anything yet. You talk about evil. After the church is removed, evil is going to unfold in this world like it had never seen like the days of Noah. And then Jesus will come back at the end of that cataclysmic time of seven years of wrath 
And those who know the Lord will walk into a brand new world. So you have Old Testament precedents. Not only do you have new Old Testament precedents, you have New Testament clarity. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and on and on, or 1 Thessalonians 5.19, I read it 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath. We read that this morning. And so there is passage after passage after passage, much like we're reading, that demands a pre-tribulational rapture. Again, you can just write it all off, say the next event Jesus comes back, we all go to heaven. But you cannot have a post-tribulational rapture and God literally fulfill prophecy. Remember, at the rapture, we go up and we get a resurrected body. Can you sin in your resurrection body? Of course not. Your salvation will be completed. Suppose we're here for the tribulation. Everyone, Old Testament church saints, everyone's resurrected. And then we come back and make a U-turn to reign with Christ in the earth. Who at the end of the thousand years, when Satan's been bound for a thousand years, who is he going to tempt against God's Messiah ruling in Jerusalem? There's no one to tempt if we all have a resurrection body. So out of prophetic necessity, passage after passage, reason after reason, it demands a pre-tribulational rapture. But if we go up, if tribulation saints meet the Lord during that seven-year period. Some will survive it. Jesus said, if the days were not cut short, no one would survive. They'll enter into the, tri- the millennial reign in their natural bodies. The earth will be rejuvenated. It's called the rejuvenation. The lion will lay down with the lamb and the wolf and so forth. Literal prophecies being fulfilled. The baby will play next to the cobra's nest, not be harmed. But they'll have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And at the end of the thousand years, some of their unregenerate children who did not respond in faith will be tempted by the evil one. So you have Old Testament precedents, you have New Testament clarity, but in addition, you have prophetic necessity. Absolute prophetic necessity, it cannot happen any other way. And so Paul says, you brethren are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Anyone who tells you They know the day or the hour, and my, what a mockery has happened, though most of the day and hour predictions have been done by cults and lost people. But when they do this, because we're all grouped together, they really bring great shame on the truth of Scripture. No one knows the day or the hour, but the Scripture says you can know the season. But they believed in an imminent return, that Jesus could come back at any moment. You cannot believe in the imminent return of Christ if there's prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming. But if the churches could be raptured today and there's no prophecy, then you can believe in imminent and the prophecies only relate to the second half of the parousia. So Paul can say the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Or Peter can write in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Or John can say, children, it's the last hour and just you've, you've heard that antichrist is coming. Even so, many antichrists have appeared. From this, we know it's the last hour. And so Paul says we ought to be looking for the blessed hope, not for the tribulation, not for the Antichrist. We ought to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So why does James exhort us to strengthen our hearts? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand, and that has huge ramifications. He's reminding them the trouble that you're going through is only temporary. 
that this earth is not our home, that God is going to come back and he's going to fix it. And so we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. But a second motivation is it should lead you to a godly lifestyle. Right after Peter underscores the prophetic schedule all the way through the end of the millennial reign of the Messiah where God creates a new heaven and a new earth, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Or John, when he mentions the return of Christ, he says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, when you get fixed in your mind that Jesus can come at any moment, it should be a motivation to godly living. And so throughout the New Testament, there is always an application of how you should live when the second coming or the rapture of the church is mentioned. And that's what he's doing here in verse 9. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Because the Lord is at hand, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Hey, that's powerful. In other words, you don't say, Lord, well, why does this happen to me? Woe is me in the third degree. I mean, life is just miserable. Don't complain, and don't complain against one another. And the word here for complain is the word groaning, and it is often used in the New Testament in outside of the Bible in Koine Greek of an inner feeling that is not expressed. And so you're going through heartache, and you get all these inner feelings, and you know what the tendency is to do is to go home and to, and to take it out and to scorch those who are closest to you. You go home, you yell at the dog, you hiss at the cat, you yell at your wife and kids, and they didn't do anything. It's just because you were mistreated. And he's saying, don't do it. We're called to strengthen our hearts. We are to be patient. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is the flip side of the first point he made in verses 7 and 8. Don't worry about the persecution you're going through because you can have a sense of comfort that the Lord is coming back and he's going to fix it. But now he's giving the flip side of the Lord's return that when he comes back, we're going to be accountable. Now, the unbeliever stands at the great white throne judgment. And so the scripture repeatedly says that men, lost people, will be judged according to their deeds. Why? Because their deeds will show that they're lost, that they've never been born again. But two, God will mete out his justice according to their works. Hell, in a general way, is terrible, awful for anyone who goes, but in the perfect justice of God, it will not be the same. We too will have a judgment, but not the great white throne judgment. And so Paul, uh, John says in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So on the one hand, there is no judgment for the believer for sin, but there is a judgment for service. And Jesus underscored that truth, and Paul does in a passage like 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's the judgment of the just, and God is gonna evaluate your works, be they good or bad. 
contextually, good works are those that are done in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Bad works are those that are done when you're out of fellowship with God. And a mark of carnality, among other things, is complaining, it's grumbling. And when we have perspective and we are exercising biblical patience, then we won't be complain heads. Now, look, whatever you do for the Lord will never be lost. He looks at every deed you've done, every act of service you've completed. I was speaking to a pastor's wife yesterday, and they were talking, she was talking about how, you know, it's difficult. I felt her pain. How difficult it is to get people to work for their vacation Bible school. She said, we have two groups of people in the church. One group who says, I'm past that. I'm not in that season of life. I'm not going to serve those kids. And the other are the young moms who say, I need a break. I don't want to serve. I just want to drop them off. And I said, well, you know, your husband needs to, as I'm sure he is, teach the standard. People who think that way are about as unchristlike as you can get. I know not everyone can serve at vacation Bible school. You know, I was so blessed so many years by guys like Fred Eady who'd take a week's vacation to come serve at vacation Bible school. And other men who would take their vacation time. You are never more like Christ than when you care for children. And listen, whatever you put into the soil of God's service, he is going to look at it and reward it. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now remember that therefore verse 7 goes back to these Christians who are being unfairly treated. And he says, look, find comfort. The Lord's coming. Find comfort when he comes. He is going to reward you for your service. I know sometimes I have to counsel people in very difficult circumstances. Maybe they haven't experienced the same kind of persecution that he's describing here where they don't get a paycheck to feed their family, but they're persecuted nonetheless. And and they they just feel kind of like ripped off. And I'll tell them over and over again, you have to forgive. You've got to forgive. What did the Lord Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. What did Peter say? While suff- while, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Jesus didn't say, hey, boy, wait. My father's going to get you. And he prayed for them. He entrusted himself to the living God. And he forgave them. Paul gives the same advice to the church at Thessalonica. He said, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He is going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He is reminding them God is going to fix it all at the second coming. And the wickedness that we see, and it looks like we're losing. There's a God in heaven who's sovereign 
who's ruling, and he is not sweating up there in the throne room this morning. He is coming back, and he's going to fix every wrong. And so I've had to counsel women over the years who were raped and abused, and I will tell them you have to forgive. I've had to help countless single moms. He made a commitment to me at the marriage altar, and some other pretty face came along, and he dumped me, and I'm all alone. You got to forgive. I had to deal with a dad who I, I, I was privileged to lead his wife to Christ. And she was coming to the discovery class. She was growing, but she had this troublesome daughter. This was almost 28 years ago. And that troublesome daughter got two of her friends and murdered her own mother. I said, you have to forgive Some of you have experienced racial injustices. You've got to forgive. Be patient like the farmer who's waiting for his crop, just knowing that the righteous judge is coming back and he is going to fix it. And no smart lawyer will be able to get anybody off. Brothers, you worked hard all day and they didn't pay you. But your cry has ascended up into heavens, and God is going to fix it. And so be patient, brethren. The judge is standing right at the door. God has all the facts. He's weighing it. Now, there's a second illustration. I'm almost done. It seems like I'm just on point one, but... Like a patient farmer wait for the return of God, like the prophets wait for the justice of God to help us to get a handle on patience and on strengthening our hearts and not complaining, he directs us to the Old Testament prophets, men of God, that these dispersed Jewish believers knew well. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What a powerful example they are from the very first prophet, Abel. What happened to Abel? He was murdered. By the way, you don't know he's a prophet from the Old Testament, but Jesus in the New Testament tells us he was the very first prophet. And he preached, and for preaching, his own brother murdered him. First prophet was Abel, the last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. And he got his head taken off. And so he's saying, look at the prophets. Think about Jesus when he described the Pharisees in his day. He said, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets, There when he wept over Jerusalem, making this city symbolic of the entire nation, at that place he said, this is a city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Stephen, he charges the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. He says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? God himself says of the prophet Moses in describing his flock, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Elijah, we studied him, did a whole series on him. He faced the hostility of Ahab and Jezebel. Jeremiah had opposition. We often dub him the weeping prophet. Micah, he's ridiculed and slandered. Amos and Haggai, all they're doing is obeying God, and they suffer for it greatly. Ezekiel, he has to endure the death of his wife because during the course of his ministry, as he 
has this inconsolable grief. God uses that as an illustration of how grieved he is over the disobedience of the nation. As I mentioned, John the Baptist, all he did was preach about forgiveness that would come through the Messiah, and they took his head off. If you go over just a couple pages to the left, to Hebrews chapter 11, look at this summary of such men. Hebrews 11, and look, if you will, in this great chapter on faith at verse 36, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, and then he just has to pause because he's overwhelmed. Men of whom the world is, was not worthy, wandering in deserts, in mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You talk about heartache. So why would James use the prophets? Because nearly every single prophet that died, died without the fulfillment of the promises that they preached about. God said to a guy like Abraham, he was a prophet too. Abraham, I got a piece of property for you. In fact, here's the dimensions of it. And through your seed, Abraham is going to come the Savior of the world. And he never sees the fulfillment of either promise, but he dies in faith. Or you take Isaiah, who traditionally is identified as the one in the Hebrews text as being sawn in two, or Zechariah, the son of Joyadea, whom we know for sure, the Bible says he was stoned to death, or Jeremiah, who's thrown into a muddy cistern. And there's no resolution, but there are examples of men of God who died without a resolution, and they didn't let it affect their hearts and their walks with the Lord. And he says, strengthen yourself by looking and considering these examples. Listen, if we're told to be like the prophets, there are two truths that these men clung to. Number one was that someday God would fix the wrongs, and that's one of their underlying messages. But number two, they believed in the 50-20 principle. And it helped them to patiently endure. I did a whole series once on Joseph. And remember, he was a guy who his brothers sold him into slavery. He lost his youth at home. He was separated from his family. He grew up in a strange country. He was sold as a slave. Finally, someone took notice of him, gave him a better job. But then his boss's wife accused him of rape. He's thrown into prison. He's neglected for years. He interprets the dream of someone who has greatly helped. He's forgotten. I mean, you talk about a man who could be cynical and bitter and angry. But he wasn't. And God, in his perfect time, makes him second in command over all Egypt and when he meets his brothers, he said, what you meant for evil, Genesis 50, 20, God meant for good. And that's really what these guys were like. And they are worth your consideration this morning because they saw the big picture. Finally, like the patient farmer, wait for the return of the Lord. Like the prophets, wait for the justice of God. But now, third, like righteous Job, wait for the blessing of God. Like righteous Job, wait for the blessing of God. Look at verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. 
You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. In other words, when we consider those who have endured, we count them blessed. Intuitively, those who suffer for the sake of righteousness, we esteem them. We, we set them aside in a special category that they endured so faithfully for the Lord. But now, he's taking us to Job because he wants us to consider, are we going to just bless those or do we want to be a part of those who are blessed? And that's why he goes past the prophets and he goes to Job because the prophets never saw the blessing, whereas Job did. And we will ultimately see the blessing as well, just like Job. Hold your finger here and go to the book of Job. There's no slides for this. I hope you bring a Bible. Go to Job chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And then go to the book right before it, and you'll be in Job chapter 1. Go to Job chapter 1, if you will. The book starts out where you're taken behind the scenes to what is unfolding in heaven. And in Job 1 and in verse 9, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. What's he doing? He's saying the only reason Job serves you is because you bought him off. You blessed him. Take it away. You'll see he doesn't really love you. By the way, diabolo, devil, means to slander, to defame. And that's why he is called the accuser of the brethren in the Revelation. There's only actually three times in all the Bible. You see his activity throughout the Bible. But there's only three times in all the Bible where you actually get to hear the voice of Satan. And in each case, he slanders. The first time, if you remember, he's in the Garden of Eden. He's saying, Eve, God ripped you off. He's holding back. He slanders God before man. The second time you hear the voice of the devil is here in the book of Job, where he slanders man before God. He does just the opposite. He does just the opposite of what he did with Eve. And then the third time, if you remember, he slanders the God-man there in the temptation, Matthew 4, Luke 4. And so in Eden, he says to Eve, God is not good enough. And here in the book of Job, he says, God is too good. And so he is full of slander. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. It's a beautiful afternoon, and everything comes unglued. Satan liquidates his property, his sons, his daughters, everything he has. And look at his response in verse 21. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And we sang it this morning, blessed be the name of the Lord. Back in heaven, chapter 2, verse one, again, there was a day when the sons of God, the Bnei Elohim, again, a reference to angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. 
the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Job isn't anything great. If you touch his person, you just watch what happens. So he's given permission not to wipe him out, but to touch his person. And he's covered over with these skin ulcers. And what's Job's response in 1315? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Many people have an if kind of faith. If you do this, Lord, then I will do that. But Job has a though kind of faith. Though you slay me, I will still trust him. Here's the book of Job. I taught it back in the 1990s. One through three, it's a picture of Job's distress. Four through 37, Job's defense. And so remember, he's got these three friends. And these three friends are trying to accuse Job of unrighteousness. They say, hey, Job, the reason you've got so much trouble in your life is there's sin in your life. So cough it up. Tell us what it is that you're doing that no one else knows. And then finally, you come to chapters 38 through 42, where you have Job's deliverance, and it's as if God says, hey, when you guys run out of gas, I've got something to say. And God speaks. And listen to what Job 42, 7 says, my wrath is kindled against you. That was Eliphaz. And against your two friends, Bildad and Zophar. Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. By the way, I hear people, especially the prosperity theologians, quote Job all the time. And they're quoting often these three guys that God says have not spoken accurately of him. And they do it, of course, to build a false theology. Look, when you quote Job, make sure you're not quoting these that God didn't approve of. But these guys were involved in the height of prosperity theology. And of course, they basically taught you're blessed if you're obedient and righteous. And that's how these con artists can justify their millions of dollars and their private jets and their $20 million houses because they say it's a sign that I'm righteous. Now back to James. I'm just about done. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What's the outcome of his dealings? That he's full of compassion and mercy. That's the ultimate picture of every patient believer, that someday ultimately we will be vindicated, that your endurance is going to pay off. Just be patient. And Satan uses impatience as a powerful weapon. Moses, in his impatience, lost the opportunity to enter the promised land. Abraham, in his impatience, had Ishmael, and forever they've been plaguing the Jewish people. But when Satan attacks, cling to the fact, in spite of the circumstances, that God never changes, that he is full of compassion and mercy. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any oath, but, let, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Why does he drop that in here? 
Because when we're suffering, we are likely to make some kind of a deal with God. When he says, do not swear, of course, you know he's not referring to foul language. He's talking about making an oath. And so your wife is sick, your child is near death, and you say, dear God, if you will just somehow intervene and spare their life, I will do such and such for you. God intervenes, and you shortly forget. And God says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you say yes, mean yes. When you say no, mean no. And I appreciate people that I can relate to on that level. When they say no, they mean no. When they say yes, I can count on it. I don't have to go back and ask them a second time. Then he adds, so that you may not fall under judgment. That's another way of simply saying so that you don't get into double trouble with God. In other words, if you add some kind of an oath, some kind of a promise, as the Jews would typically do, to some commitment that they were going to make, but they didn't really mean it, it was just a cover-up, it was just adding piosity to their hypocrisy, it doesn't mean anything. Now, we may not have oaths like they did in the first century, like the Jewish believers do, but we sign our income tax. And we stand at some marriage altar and we say, Lord, until death do us part or until Christ returns, I'm here no matter what. And God says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Otherwise, he said, we are going to fall under judgment. What does he mean by that? That we're going to go to hell? Of course not. That would contradict what he's already taught in this epistle and the rest of the New Testament. He's speaking about the discipline of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. How are we going to apply this? Three applications. Number one, like the patient farmer, wait for the return of God. Like the patient farmer, wait for the return of God. We need to respond properly because someday the sufferings of this life will end and someday we will give an account. But just know God is in charge. We have to wait for his harvest time. Secondly, like the prophets of old, wait for the justice of God. Like the prophets who did not waver no matter what. Remember, a day is coming when the judge will return when he will right every wrong. Application number three, like righteous Job, wait for the blessing of God. In the end, and I say in the end, God's ultimate mercy and compassion will be fully displayed to his people. We need to work like the farmer. We need to witness and to be willing to suffer like the prophets. And we will ultimately be rewarded like Job Everything he had was doubled. And someday, Jesus said, no one has left father and mother and houses. We're not only in this life, but in the life to come. You'll be blessed a hundred times over. Now, Father, I don't know what some people are going through today, but you do. And it's so easy to capitulate to the spirit of the age and to participate in complaining and griping and groaning instead of with a renewed mind, with the mind of Christ, fixated on the truth of Scripture, responding as he would respond. 
Now, I know without a birth from above, this is impossible. So I pray for someone today who's never received Jesus, that they would become a Christian today. You said today is the day of salvation. Help someone to call upon Jesus in faith. Most listening have done that. But help us to learn from the farmer. Help us to learn from the prophets. Help us to learn from Job. These three enduring examples that you've given us. That we might display the character of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name and for his honor. Amen.